You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the fourth episode of season seven. I hope you had a chance to listen to last week's episode that focused on the life and crimes of Lee Anstis. Before we get into this week's, even before we get into this week's icebreaker actually, I just want to give every one of my listeners a massive thank you, a big old shout out. British Murders has just surpassed one million total downloads. Maybe I'll insert a round of applause thing here so that it sounds like you're clapping. Thank you to everyone for million downloads. Here's to number 2 million. 2023 is going to be a massive year for British murders. I appreciate you all. Stick around. There are bigger and better things to come. Trust me on that one. Without further ado, here is the show's opening icebreaker segment. It sounds a little something like this. Welcome to Daddy Facts. And here is this week's Dad Fact. There is a wife carrying... (laughs) I don't read these before I record. There is a wife carrying competition in Finland. (laughs) <laughs> where the winner receives his wife's weight in beer. <laughs> oh, there's too many jokes I could make there, but I won't. That is the last dad facts, because that is the last card from the pack of cards. I do have a couple new segments lined up for next week, so look out for those. The jingles are very cute, I'll say that much. This week's case was suggested via email by listener Heather. We're in a couple of locations around West London this week, but for my five facts, I'm going to focus on a different location. You'll find out why soon enough. Here are five quickfire facts about the town of Windsor in Berkshire. Number one, Windsor Castle is the oldest and largest occupied castle in the world. Founded by William the Conqueror in the 11th century, it has since been the home of 40 monarchs and it's the official residence of King Charles III. Number two, the Windsor Knot, sometimes referred to as a full Windsor, is named after King Edward VII. It's the only tie knot that is to be used by all Royal Air Force personnel in the UK when wearing their black tie while in uniform. Number three, Red Windsor is Berkshire's only native cheese. A cheddar impregnated with veins of elderberry wine or a blend of port wine and brandy. What are these facts? Number four, Brown Windsor soup is hearty and generally made from lamb or beef steak, carrots, leeks, parsnips, bouquet garni and Madeira wine. It was featured on the menu of TV's Faulty Towers Hotel. And number five, a dedicated equestrian enthusiast, Queen Elizabeth II, attended almost every royal ascot during her reign. She only missed 2020 due to COVID and 2022 and every Royal Windsor horse show since it started in 1943. Thank you to windsor.gov.uk for those facts. Let me quickly advise you that this podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. As always, listener discretion is advised. Before I introduce this week's villain, I want to tell you about a recent interview I conducted with prison GP Dr. Shahed Yousaf. The episode isn't out yet, but I asked him whether the average age of UK prisoners was getting lower due to the increased volume of knife crime committed by teenagers and young adults. To my surprise, Dr. Y said the reality is quite the contrary. The prison population has seen a recent influx of older prisoners, people in the 60s and 70s, who committed crimes decades ago. Thanks to advances in DNA technology, they're finally being brought to justice as pensioners, 
and will no doubt spend the rest of their twilight years behind bars. This week's case is one of those scientific success stories. Our villain is named Colin Frederick Campbell, and he was born in 1947. Whilst I know nothing of his parents, one would assume that his dad likely served in the British Army during World War II, and potentially even World War I. I know that Colin has epilepsy, which his legal teams would later use as their primary defence in both of their clients' murder cases, but to what degree he suffered from the neurological disorder, only he truly knows. We may as well skip forward to Colin's adult life now, because his early life and background are not well documented. This week's first timeline began in August 1981, when Colin Campbell was 34. He made a living travelling the UK as a salesman for a chemical company, but he called West London his home. The neighbouring suburbs of Acton and Hanwell are where he appears to have made his roots. Colin was a keen hockey player and appeared to have played the sport in a competitive capacity at an amateur level. He had a wife he'd been married to for around a decade, but I found nothing to suggest the couple had any children. I appreciate I've given you minimal information about this week's villain, but I've covered everything available in the public domain, as far as I can tell anyway. Let's explore this first timeline in a bit more detail then. The date was August 28th, 1981. It was a Friday. 17-year-old Claire Woolterton was at home ironing her clothes. Perhaps it's not everyone's idea of a perfect Friday night, but Claire seemed content with what she was doing. She had told her mum Carol that she had no plans to go out that evening, and she told her older brother Nick the same. The siblings had an uncharacteristically long chat that evening, but at some point Claire had changed her plans and decided she was going out after all. By the time Carol and Claire's stepfather Terry Pierce arrived home, Claire was nowhere to be seen. She'll be back by ten, Carol thought. The ever-responsible Claire would know better than to worry her mum by arriving home at an ungodly hour. Claire was the youngest of three children, and the only girl. I believe Nick was the middle child, with 21-year-old Philip being the eldest. I may have placed the two brothers wrongly in the pecking order age-wise, so apologies if that's the case. The family lived on Yedding Lane in the West London town of Northolt, which is four miles north of Hanwell and six miles northwest of Acton. Claire was loved dearly by her family. They described her as being incredibly hard-working and kind with a huge heart. She was a people person and would go out of her way to help anyone in need. She held down a job that she loved and was proud of, and it was rare to see her without one of her many friends by her side. 10pm on that fateful Friday evening came and went, as did 11pm, as did midnight. The last thing Carol could do was sleep due to being worried sick, as only a parent can be when their child's location is unknown. It was really out of character for Claire to return home so late. With every sound outside amplified, a burst of laughter nearby sent a massive wave of relief through Carol's body. Oh, she's home, the worried mum of three thought, and off to the land of nod she went. Unbeknownst to Carol, the laughter did not come from her daughter. So if the laughing outside didn't come from Claire, where on earth was she? After leaving the family home, Claire made her way to an amusement arcade on Uxbridge Road that connects the residential area of Ealing to Acton. A man Claire had been seeing ran the arcade, and she likely planned to spend time with him as he worked. Perhaps they were going to do something once he'd knocked off, but we'll never know, as Claire left shortly after arriving. The couple reportedly had a disagreement, which resulted in Claire deciding to go home. Usually, Claire would have been given a lift home by the man she'd gone to see, but on this occasion, she would be walking. The 17-year-old was last seen alive walking along a road leading to Hanwell at roughly 10pm that evening the same time she would ideally have been walking through her front door. 
As he made his way home in his car, the man tried to convince Claire to get in so he could save her the walk, but she must have refused. The man would arrive back at his own home by 10.30pm. Perhaps watching the whole thing unfold from afar, Colin Campbell would soon pick up Claire in his car as she walked through the dark streets alone. It's unclear as to what the specific chain of events was, i.e. whether Claire got into his car willingly or whether Colin forced her, but it's clear what his evil plan was. Colin sexually assaulted Claire and strangled her with his bare hands until she lost consciousness. Despite being 17, exactly half of her attacker's age, Claire put up as good a defensive fight as she could, as evidenced by the defensive wounds later found during her post-mortem, but Colin was simply too powerful and determined for her. Once unconscious and stripped of her clothing, Claire was subjected to a brutal attack with a knife that involved her attacker slashing her throat at least four times. Colin then committed one final act of indignity by mutilating Claire's private parts with the same knife. The location of where Colin killed Claire is unknown, but it was undoubtedly a different site from where her body was found the following morning. A male Londoner was making his way to work in the early hours of the following day, Saturday, August 29th, 1981. Walking his usual route along the River Thames, he happened to double-take a strange object in the distance, which at first he mistakenly believed to be a department store mannequin that had perhaps been dumped by some drunkards the previous evening. On closer inspection, the man realised it was no mannequin. He then did the responsible thing and phoned the police immediately. Officers from Thames Valley Police arrived at the scene at 6.45am, 15 minutes after being informed of the situation. The police had been called to the banks of the River Thames just off Barry Avenue in Windsor, a town roughly 14 miles west of Hanwell, where Claire was last seen alive. The scene was bizarre, as there wasn't any blood on the ground or in surrounding areas. There was blood on the body, which belonged to what appeared to be a teenage girl. Police figured the killer must have dumped the girl's body by the Thames after killing her somewhere else, which would make gathering any forensic evidence even more difficult than usual. After securing the crime scene, the Thames Valley officers ordered the nearby houseboats to remain moored until each one had been questioned and ruled out as suspects. None of the houseboat occupants had heard or seen anything suspicious, and each had solid alibis, so the officers quickly eliminated them from the initial inquiry. Whilst the forensic team commenced with a process called taping, the application of clear adhesive tape applied to a surface, peeled off, then placed against a backing card, and then logged as evidence, a call was made to the on-call home office pathologist. The plan was to have him conduct a preliminary analysis of the victim's body. I referred to Claire as the victim there, just because the officers didn't know her identity at the time. His findings were that whoever was responsible for the brutal murder had likely dealt the killer blows whilst the victim was unconscious. The pathologist then suggested that the final acts of body mutilation had occurred at the site where the body was discovered, with the killer inflicting the other wounds elsewhere. In the early 80s, DNA was non-existent, as were CCTV cameras and mobile phones. ANPR, or Automatic Number Plate Recognition, was around, having been invented in 1976 in the UK, but it was still very much in its infancy. Therefore, all samples acquired through taping were filed away and sent into storage, where they would remain for the next three decades. I'm jumping the gun a little though, let's stay with the current timeline for now. Back on Yeading Lane, Claire's mum Carol had woken up after a rough night's sleep and headed straight for her daughter's room. She wasn't there. Not only was she not in her room, Claire wasn't even in the house. The last shred of hope was that perhaps Claire had stayed at a friend's house and just forgot to let her mum know. 
That hope dwindled as soon as Carol arrived at her work. She heard on the radio that the police had found the body of a teenage girl by the River Thames in Windsor, and she just knew the body was Claire's. Carol hadn't even had the chance to say goodbye to her daughter before she went out that evening. Before contacting the police, Carol rang every one of Claire's friends that she could think of. None of them had seen her or knew where she was. After that, Carol called Claire's employer, who displayed frustration at the teenager not turning up for a shift without letting anyone know. All the pieces of the puzzle were slowly coming together. Everything was pointing to the body found by the police that morning belonging to Claire Wolterton. Once home, Carol went to the nearest police station to report Claire as missing. Leaving some photos with the officers, it wasn't long before they made the connection. Carol was soon informed that it was indeed her daughter whose body the man on his way to work that morning had found by the banks of the River Thames. As you'd expect, the man Claire had visited on the Friday evening became a key suspect, and the police made questioning him a priority. That theory fell flat rather quickly, as one of the man's neighbours recalled seeing him taking his dog for an evening walk just after 10.30pm. I watched an episode of A Town and Country Murder while researching this episode, and I was astonished when hearing the lens Detective Superintendent Kenneth Linney and his team went to in the hope of finding Claire's killer. They did the usual stuff, such as house-to-house -house inquiries and interviewing already convicted criminals who'd been sent down on similar charges, but the police also tried some experimental techniques as desperation set in. A hypnotist was drafted in to help the police whilst interviewing two witnesses who'd come forward with a story of a woman being pulled into a car on Uxbridge Road on the night Claire disappeared. The hope was that the hypnotist could coax some deep-lying memories out of them as the information provided was vague, but it failed miserably. The 50-strong team of officers were running out of ideas, and just when you thought things couldn't get stranger, a clairvoyant got in touch with Claire's family and asked if she could speak with them. After overstaying her welcome, Carol asked the clairvoyant to leave a couple of hours into her visit as she was making her feel incredibly uncomfortable. The clairvoyant had made out like she was communicating with Claire, which was too much for the family to bear. Six months quickly passed after the discovery of Claire's body, and the police were no further towards identifying her killer than they were on the morning her body was found. The murder investigation was wound down as a result, and nobody was charged with Claire's murder. Colin Campbell wasn't on the police's radar back then, and wasn't even questioned by them. Worse still, the police feared that if the murder was the act of a serial killer, more innocent women could be killed, and the police would have no way of catching him until he killed again. Except for the serial killer part, the police were correct. The story will continue after these quick messages. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. And now, back to the story. Our second timeline began on Saturday, December 22nd, 1984, just over three years after the man making his way to work one morning discovered the body of Claire Wolterton. Having gotten away with murder, Colin Campbell lived his life as any other free person would. He had his wife, house, job and hockey hobby, the latter of which he'd been playing that wintry Saturday in London. As he made his way home along the South Circular Road, 
formerly known as the A205, he spotted a woman facing the oncoming traffic near Roehampton with her arm extended and thumb up. The hitchhiker was 29-year-old Deirdre Sainsbury from the village of Greenham in Berkshire. Details of why Deirdre was so far from home are not readily available, and some sources seem to provide inconsistencies as to where she lived and where she was from, so I'm going to move on. Deirdre's dad was reportedly one of Britain's leading psychiatrists, but nothing comes up if you type Deirdre's name followed by the word psychiatrist into a search engine. Each of the old newspapers I read that mention her father simply says he was a renowned psychiatrist. Deirdre was one of many women who protested nuclear weapons at the Greenham Common Women's Peace Camp in the early 1980s. Not much else is known about her background, but it's clear that she was a kind yet strong-willed woman based on the information I've just given you. Let's get back to the timeline. Colin Campbell offered Deirdre Sainsbury a lift and the pair drove off together. Little did Colin know that a man had seen Deirdre get into his car and was sufficiently concerned enough to make a note of his car's registration plate. The witness had recently read an article on the dangers of hitchhiking. His vigilance would later lead to the capture of a brutal double murderer. Colin said that he and Deirdre had been getting on, but that all changed when he pulled the car over into a secluded area and tried to give the 29-year-old a, quote, kiss and a cuddle. Colin was not only rejected by Deirdre, but she also struck him across the face after he tried to force himself upon her. Enraged at being hit in the eye and nose by the woman he'd picked up, Colin struck Deirdre several times with his fists until she lost consciousness. All the while, Colin was screaming, BITCH! at the top of his voice. Once his blind rage had subdued a tad, Colin started panicking. He had given his name to the woman he'd just beaten unconscious. Colin's instinct told him to grab his hockey stick from the back seat and use it on Deirdre. He drove north to Hayes where he strangled Deirdre before continuing a few miles north to Denham Golf Club in Uxbridge. It was there where Colin dumped Deirdre's body in a wooded area of the golf course. As he had with Claire, Colin performed one final act of indignity on Deirdre before fleeing the scene. He cut off one of her breasts, hoping the police would think a madman had committed the murder. I'll tell you what, a madman did commit both murders, and his name is Colin Campbell. One article I read suggested that Colin had driven home before dumping Deirdre's body, before then leaving the house again to dump her at the golf course. His wife reportedly asked why he had a bloody nose. Colin said he'd broken it playing hockey. I can't determine if that story is true, because I don't get why he would drive home with Deirdre's body in the back of the car, just to leave a few minutes later to dump the body. The reason he gave his wife was that he was going back out to get an x-ray. There's just too many holes in that part of the story for me to believe that it happened that way. The following day, Sunday, December 23rd, 1984, Deirdre's body was found next to the golf course. The police phoned Detective Superintendent Kenneth Linney at Thames Valley Police due to the striking similarities between Claire's 1981 murder and Deirdre's 1984 murder. Their fears of a serial killer striking again had seemingly become a reality. The man who had noted Colin Campbell's registration saw a news article a day or two after the police found Deirdre's body and he recognised her. He explained what he had seen a few days earlier and handed them the registration plate number. Sure enough, it led the police directly to the then 37-year-old Colin Campbell. The last thing Colin would have expected when he made his way to a conference in the Berkshire town of Newbury was to be arrested. Police arrived at the Chequers Hotel on Oxford Street and arrested the travelling salesman on suspicion of murder. The police searched Colin's car once they realised it was in the hotel's car park. Inside were bloodstains on one of the back seats and on the roof lining. 
A subsequent search of Colin's house led to the police finding Deirdre's rucksack and a box in his garage containing some of her clothes. Blood was also found on the hockey stick he'd used to beat Deirdre. When questioned, officers asked Colin Campbell about his involvement in the murder of Claire Walterton, but he denied having anything to do with it. No evidence was found in Colin's car or home that tied him to Claire's murder. Regarding Deirdre's murder, Colin admitted to having killed her, but he explained that he had diminished responsibility due to having had an epileptic seizure at the time of the murder. When he stood trial at Reading Crown Court in the summer of 1985, the jury didn't buy that story and they unanimously found him guilty of murdering Deirdre Sainsbury. He was handed a life sentence in July 1985 but started an appeal process concerning his conviction in 1996. Reiterating that he had suffered an epileptic seizure at the time of Deirdre's murder, Colin's legal team brought in an expert witness. The expert stated that if Colin was off his medication, there is every possibility that he could have committed such an act as murder whilst having an epileptic seizure. Now my knowledge of epilepsy is admittedly minimal, but being capable of brutally murdering someone, dumping their body at a golf course a few miles away, driving a car, all during an epileptic seizure, seems a bit far-fetched to me. If I'm wrong, let me know. It took three years, but Colin finally managed to secure a retrial in 1999 and his murder conviction was quashed. Instead, he pleaded guilty to manslaughter and the judge resentenced him to life imprisonment with a minimum tariff of one day. You heard that right. One day was his minimum term. Basically, the court accepted he had diminished responsibility, but they also realised that Colin was still a danger to the public. He could not be released from prison without going through a parole board hearing. I suspect he applied for parole several times, but he was clearly thought of as too dangerous to be released. So, in prison he remained. In 2007, DCI Pete Byrne, the head of the then newly created Major Crime Review Team, started looking at historical cold cases. DCI Byrne worked on the original Claire Walterton case as a PC in 1981. Four years later, in 2011, Thames Valley Police reopened Claire's case, hoping that advances in science and DNA technology would finally lead them to her killer. Remember the tapings from the crime scene that had been placed in storage? Those were re-examined by LGC Forensics, now LGC Group, in Abingdon, Oxfordshire. A result came back in no time. Colin Campbell's DNA was added to the UK's National DNA Database when it was introduced in 1995. The same DNA was found on tapings taken from Claire Walterton. At first, the chances of the DNA belonging to anyone other than Colin Campbell were one in a million. For a conviction in court, the odds needed to be one in a billion. A professor of genetic statistics from University College London carried out additional forensic work and eventually stated that, in his opinion, there was a one in a billion chance of the DNA belonging to someone else other than Colin Campbell. Worryingly, as the tests were being carried out, Colin Campbell was spending five days a month outside of prison after being downgraded to a Category D prisoner status. It's thought that Colin may have been released from prison if the DNA had not been re-examined. He was sent back to a closed prison while the tests were finalised and then arrested on November 27th, 2012 for Claire's murder once the one in a billion match was confirmed. Colin had the following to say when he was shown a picture of Claire while officers questioned him. My lifestyle meant that the way I was, I wasn't averse to being friendly with a lady. I may well have known a series of ladies. Claire may have been one of them. She looks like any girl I may have played hockey with. She looks like any girl I may have met through work. She looks like a happy person, and I'm glad about that. 
No, I don't recognise her. That's not to say I never ever knew her. I just don't remember her. Colin stood trial for Claire's murder at Reading Crown Court on November 15th, 2013. He pleaded not guilty and attempted to use the epilepsy defence again. This time, no expert supported his testimony. To commit murder once during a seizure was bizarre enough. To have that happen twice was simply ludicrous. The old saying, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, feels relevant here. The jury deliberated for three days, with the four men and eight women finding Colin guilty of Claire's murder by way of a majority decision. Mr Justice Spencer handed Colin Campbell a life sentence on December 4th, 2013, with a minimum term of 24 years. The term will run concurrent to his existing sentence. He will be 90 years old when he's next eligible for parole. A month before Colin was sentenced, Claire Wolterton's brother Philip sadly passed away. He had been suffering from several mental health problems since his sister's murder, and the family attributed each of them directly to what happened to Claire. Thames Valley Police published the following statement on behalf of Claire's family after Colin Campbell was sentenced. We welcome the fact justice has now been served, and Claire's murderer has been identified and sentenced after more than 30 years. However, this doesn't bring Claire back to us, or in any way compensate Colin Campbell's cruel act. Claire's murder had a shocking and distressing permanent effect on our lives. We have been emotionally scarred for life, and have a very cynical outlook to life now. Claire was a precious young teenager in the prime of her life with everything to look forward to. She was only 17 years of age, a lovely, bright, hard-working girl who was very popular with her friends, showing a great sense of humour and kindness in helping others. We never had the chance to say goodbye. You don't get over something like this. You have to learn to live with it. And we have no choice. And that was the story of British murderer Colin Campbell. Thanks again, Heather, for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear your thoughts about it on social media. I've got four new reviews to read this week. Grace left the following five-star review on BritishMurders.com. Love this podcast. I listen all the time now. It's all, obviously, very morbid, but very interesting and informative. Some I have never heard of, and I live in Scotland. It's easy to listen because you have a lovely voice, so makes up for the horrid content spoken about. Karen T left the following five-star review on BritishMurders.com. I love this podcast. Started listening to podcasts to drift off to sleep. Your voice is soothing and gentle, and I love your accent, which makes it enjoyable to listen to. Always look forward to a new episode. Brenda left the following five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Just found you through the Red Rum podcast. Looking forward to good things. Red Rum's a bloody good podcast, by the way. Shout out, Red Rum. And Brit Nan left the following five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I'm an expat living in Chicago. I just found your podcast. I want to say what a fantastic listening experience I've been having for the past three weeks. Thank you so much, Grace, Karen, Brenda, and Brit Nan for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser, or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each on BritishMurders.com. Thank you, Sky Emilino, for supporting the show on Patreon. Please continue emailing case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You can also contact me directly via the website. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll also get a cheeky shout-out. Before I close out, I'd like to give a massive shout-out to Ryan Williams and Brogan Riley, who've been on the ground in Ukraine for the last six months. 
Along with many other volunteers, Ryan and Brogan have been carrying out humanitarian work, delivering vital aid to the villagers at the front lines, which is absolutely incredible. I'm glad British Murders is helping make those long drives seem much shorter, but Ryan, please stop falling asleep listening to the show. I don't want to be held responsible for your murderous nightmares. That's it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.